So part of being human is that we feel things, if you hadn't noticed. And, and sometimes quite deeply. We are affected. We are affected by one another and by, uh, by life, by the circumstances of our life and by the experiences that we have. Um, we're very sensitive creatures. All of our sense organs, our eyes, our ears, this body, um, very, very sensitive to, to contact, to touch. Touches at the eyes, at the ears, at the nose, at the tongue, at the body, the mind. And there's this wide range of, uh, of feelings we can experience as human beings. You know, from, from joy to sorrow and from, from ecstasy to anguish and everything in between. And it's part of how we're built. We're built in this way that we feel. And the question is, how, how, how do we navigate that, you know? How do we navigate that? The, this life is, is fundamentally one of relationship. We are always in relationship with something, with other people, with ourselves, with our environment, space around us. You could even look at, look at, at the mind, at consciousness, and understand consciousness as an experience of relationship, that the mind is always knowing an object. There's this consciousness and, and an object, knowing in an object, there's this relationship this fundamental unit of experience, of contact, object, and, and, and awareness touching. So how are we in that relationship? And this is really uh, the question at the heart of the Buddhist path, is what happens when the mind touches experience? Does it get pulled in does it start um, picking up those experiences and uh, developing um, uh, kind of an, uh, an addiction to the pleasant ones and uh, a repulsion to the unpleasant ones? And, and that, that basic patterning then starts to pull us through our life, pulling us and then it gets, and then, and then it elaborates into all all of the various forms of contact and all the various forms of relationship and feelings that we experience. This basic push-pull. We get pulled around and pushed around. How do things? How are we when things don't go our way? How are we when we meet with difficulty? How are we when we meet with success? How are we when we're met with blame? How are we when we're met with praise? How do we respond? How do we respond to these changing circumstances, these changing contacts in our relationships? And do we let the circumstances dictate our response? Do we let life dictate our response? Do we let other people dictate our response? Or do we have the clarity, the steadiness, the space, the, the breadth of our heart to stay balanced, 
to choose consciously our response. The Tao is saying, you know, I am I'm kind to those who are kind. I am kind to those who are unkind. I am patient with those who are patient. I am patient with those who are impatient. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but there's that sense of whatever comes, we have the choice of how we respond. So this is one of the fruits of practice. This kind of a steadiness in life, a steadiness in relationships, in the changing circumstances of things. And this kind of balance is called equanimity, this poise, this ability to stay steady. And it comes through seeing clearly through seeing clearly what's happening and releasing the reactivity, that conditioned ricochet from experience, that conditioned kind of um, uh, magnetic pull into experience. We see clearly and then the mind stays steady. So this is a, um, one of the fruits of practice and also a part of the path that, that we cultivate uh, in general and in our speech and our relationships, very important in our speech and our communication. So what is, what is equanimity, this balance, this balance of mind? The word uh, in Pali is upeka, it shows up in the teachings in many, many different contexts. There are many, many different kinds of equanimity. I was looking at the suttas earlier, just kind of reviewing things and looking up words, kind of having fun. And um, uh, in one sutta, there's you know like uh, 18 different kinds of equanimity based on all different circumstances. And uh, so then there's the equanimity of um, of the seven factors of awakening. That's the last, kind of the pinnacle of the seven factors of awakening. There's equanimity of the Brahma-viharas, what we've been chanting every morning, I will abide with a mind imbued with equanimity. Uh, there's equanimity uh, just in the sense of neutral, neutral experience. It's not pleasant or unpleasant. It's not agreeable or disagreeable. It's kind of just in the middle. That's another, that's not an equanimity of the mind, that's an equanimity, that's the taste of things. There's all these different kinds of equanimity. But that word upeka, it means something like looking on, looking looking upon something. So there's this sense of, of perspective. So it's this balance of mind or, or a steadiness of the heart, an equilibrium an internal equilibrium or poise that's responsive, it's not fixed. If you ever walked on a balance beam or just the edge of a wall, what, what is balance? It's not a fixed state, right? It's flexible, it's changing, it's responsive. So that's equanimity, it's dynamic, like a, like a gyroscope. It moves, it shifts, uh, staying in the middle, staying in the middle of things. Equanimity quiets our reactivity. It quiets the reactivity, the resentment, uh, getting caught up in our preferences, in that, in that attraction and repulsion to experience. It, 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 it evens that out. 
And because of that, it allows us to see things impartially, to see things clearly, not, not instead of seeing things through the lens of our preferences, right? Seeing things in terms of what's going to be to our advantage or not, what we want and what we don't want to see things impartially, and thus also to treat other people impartially, to treat everyone with the same response, with that same level of, of kindness or uh, care or presence, is one of the things that uh, many people comment about great beings. And you have ever heard anyone talk about meeting the Dalai Lama, there's many, many stories of that sense of, you know, when when, uh, he looks in your eyes that there's that sense of you're the most important person in the world in that moment. It's a complete undivided attention. And, it's this, and, and then there's that, it's the same. It's not like only with some people, right? There's that impartiality, that equanimity. My first teacher was like that, Manindraji. Treated everyone the same. The same sense of, of warmth and interest and, and, and enthusiasm. And just think about people you know in your life, who you admire. Joseph's like that. You never know, spend time with Joseph, he's like that. People who we, it feels good to be around certain people. You know, it's like, and then you look and you notice like, oh, they're like that with everyone. It's not just me. Right? That's, that's a fun, one of the functions of equanimity, that sense of impartiality, not pushing and pulling away what we like and what we don't like. And how we do that with people, wow, they, they don't really matter, you know. I don't really like them, or they don't, they don't care. Without this kind of uh, growing balance in the mind, when we meet with the things that uh, don't please us, or when we meet with the things that do please us, the mind starts to wobble and spin, or it gets bent. It gets, it gets kind of bent out of shape. So some, some, some equanimity develops just over time, just, just being alive, you know, like things that upset you 20 years ago probably don't upset you. Things that upset you 40 years ago probably don't upset you. You know, like when we were a little kid, you break something or you lose something, it's a big deal, right? You know, and then eventually you start to grow up, you realize, well, you know, it's okay. It's just, that's a kind of equanimity. You just, you see experience, just learn through experience that, you know, This is the way it goes, you know, things break. <laughs> There's a famous story of Ajahn Chah who had a, a beautiful glass, um, a beautiful crystal glass that someone had given him. And uh, someone was asking him, you know, are you, uh, are you worried it might break? Are you afraid it might break? Or, you know, so it's kind of really valuable thing. And his response was, to me, it's already broken. That's wisdom. That's seeing clearly its nature. That's right view. It's impermanent. It's fragile. It's just here for a short while. It will break eventually. That's its nature. It's already broken. So there's not that sense of hold, trying to hold on to something that can't be held on to. And so then if and when it did break, no big deal. It's just following its nature. It's just doing what it does.
Well, it's interesting um, in looking at some of the Pali around around equanimity. Um, one of the pinnacles of equanimity, this this mind that that is doesn't isn't shaken by things. That word for um, not shaken in Pali, na kampati, to not kampati, to not shake or tremble. Same same as anukampa, empathy, kampati, na kampati, anukampa. Same word. So, um, you know, there is a resonance in the heart. There is a trembling in the heart that's wholesome, that's about empathy, that's about feeling and responding to what's happening. But it doesn't, it doesn't spin, it doesn't get, uh, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't shake out of its alignment. There's a resonance, the anukampa to resonate with, that's empathy, but then there's, um, when, when that resonance actually overwhelms or, or floods the system, or our response to things gets out of balance. So this is, this is a very fundamental question for us in our practice and in our relationships and communication is how do we respond? You know, when the heart is open, balanced, unconstricted, its natural response to things are the Brahma-viharas. Its natural response is just goodwill. That's the baseline. When there's suffering, its response is compassion. It, you know, so this, this resonant heart, this heart of anukampa, is goodwill, this, it meets suffering, it resonates uh, compassion. How can I help? What's needed? May this, may this be eased. It meets joy, it meets success. That resonant heart responds with celebration, with mudita, with gladness, rejoicing. And it meets the inevitable changes of things, up and down, coming and going, praise and blame, and gain and, gain and loss. Its response is evenness, is equanimity, is steadiness. So there's the, uh, there's the parable of, uh, you know, the king, um, who wants to walk in the kingdom um, and not have uh, have his feet, uh, um, uh, you know, torn and uh, and and poked and and uh, um, punctured by by the thorns and stones and rough things on the ground, and so he orders the kingdom to be covered with leather, so that he can walk everywhere on you know with his with his bare feet and not and not be jarred by all of the, the prickly contacts until some wise person says, you know, your highness, why not take the leather and cover your foot? <laughs> right? So, but what do we do in life? Do we try to make the world covered with leather? Do we try to make everything smooth and nice and easy so that there are no prickly contacts that touch us? No nasty people, no difficult conversations, no uncertain situations, you know, or do we protect the heart with mindfulness, compassion, wisdom, and equanimity? And do we put that leather on the on the on the foot? And 
Krishna Marshall Rosenberg said, I don't have to worry what anyone says to me. I only have to be concerned with how I respond. So do we let other people, do we let life determine our response, or do we determine our response? And this is, this is from the Buddha. They blame those who remain silent, and they blame those who speak a lot. They blame those who speak in moderation. There's no one in the world who is free from blame. And also, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. Like a solid mass of rock and the wind, praise and blame, pleasant and unpleasant speech coming and going. So there's that sense of, you know, can the heart be strong and balanced and spacious to just allow these things to move through and pass over us? The other, another analogy that's used sometimes in the suttas is like um, the mind of an enlightened one is like the leaf of a lotus. If you've ever seen a lotus leaf, if you drop water on it, the water just beads up and then rolls off. Anything that touches it, it just beads up and rolls off. Or like if you've never you've seen a, a duck, a water on a duck, it just rolls off. So there's that sense of it's just it doesn't move. It, it doesn't move. The heart doesn't move. Doesn't get pulled around. So in speech, this means holding an even keel, regardless of how others are meeting us. Holding an even keel, and and our ability to do this is, is kind of like a superpower when you can do this in your relationships, in your conversations. One of the suttas they'll be looking at tomorrow in depth, the simile of the saw, the Buddha goes in, in great detail about all the different ways people can address you. They can speak to you in ways that are true or false. They can speak to you at the right time or the wrong time. They can speak to you with words that um, are, are purposeful, and you know, meaningful or words that uh, that are not meaningful. Uh, they can speak to you in ways that are um, harmful or ways that are beneficial. They can speak to you in ways that are kind or ways that are harsh. All these various ways. And regardless of how one speaks to us, whichever of those permutations, whichever of those combinations, he says, you should, you, sh you're, you know, let the mind not be uh, swayed and uh, abide pervading that person with loving-kindness and the whole world with loving-kindness. What we've been chanting in the morning, every morning, that's what he says to do, regardless of how others address us. So our ability to do this, to have this even keel in the mind in relation to speech, is, uh, it's, like a, it's like an Aikido move. Something comes at us, and instead of resisting it or getting pulled into it or fighting with it, we're able to just transform it, to just meet, to just meet it and respond non-reactively. 
So you have in the suttas, you have the image of the Buddha sitting beneath the Bodhi tree before his enlightenment and, and the host of Mara, all of the demons in the Buddha's mind coming to assail him and the arrows of Mara coming. And as they, as they come close to the Buddha, then they, as, they, as they hit the Buddha, they turn into flowers. That the words that come towards us, words of you know harsh words, um, uh, harmful, wrong time, not true. There's that possibility of transforming them into something beautiful by our by how we meet them. And this came up for for the monks with the Buddha. Um, apparently, every now and then, people would. Uh, speak ill of, uh, of the Buddha or of their teachings. And uh, what was his advice to his monks about how to respond? He says, well, if anyone should speak in disparagement of me, of my teaching, or of our community, don't be angry. Don't get resentful or upset because of that. If you were to get angry and upset and disparaging, that would just be a hindrance for you. Right? That reactivity is not going to do you any good if someone's saying something disparaging about us. If others disparage me, the teachings, or the community, then you must explain what's incorrect as being incorrect, saying that's not true, that's false, that's not our way, that's not found among us. So there's just this sense of just not taking the bait not needing to get into an argument about it, but just saying, actually, that's not what the teaching says. It's this, you know, this evenness of mind. Our ability to be in a dialogue and, and uh, meet what's coming and respond authentically and uh, Stay attuned to all of the state, all of the changes in a conversation. This takes a kind of balance of mind. It takes a flexibility, uh, an equipoise inside. One of the things. one of the key places to start to pay attention to, to strengthen this capacity, is the, uh, the feeling tone, the flavor of, of experience. Because it's that sense of pleasant or unpleasant, disagreeable or agreeable, that's what gets the mind hooked. That's what gets us into the reactivity. When we don't see, when we're not aware of, of the pleasant or unpleasant uh, flavor of things or the neutral flavor of things, the mind is much more likely to, to move in, in uh, habitual automatic reactions. And we can see this just in our body as we meditate. You know, unpleasant sensation in the knee, in the back, in the neck, in the shoulder. What's the response of the mind if you don't notice it? Right? Tightens up, it resists, it whines, it gets angry, gets impatient. Instead of just being able to notice, oh, unpleasant. That's an unpleasant sensation. What's the response of the mind if there's a pleasant sensation in the body and we don't notice it? Oh, uh, I'm sorry, no, the, the response is, ooh, that's nice, right? 
Oh, I hope that keeps going. Yeah, this is getting good. All right. You know, finally getting somewhere. Right? Oh, I'm doing really good. All of a sudden, we're a great meditator. You know, whatever, whatever the story is. Instead of just being able to notice, oh, pleasant, pleasant sensation. Just like that. So one of the famous stories that the Buddha tells about, uh, about this, about how to um, pay, you know, the dangers of not paying attention specifically to unpleasant sensations is the teaching of the two arrows or the two darts. Many of you are probably familiar with it. And, you know, the short version is basically, he says to his monks, that someone who, isn't, who hasn't trained themselves and actually been practicing, uh, when, they get, when they experience an unpleasant feeling, it's like getting hit with one dart or one arrow. He says, everyone gets hit with that first arrow. All, all people, whether you're enlightened or not enlightened, everyone experiences unpleasant things in life as part of this world. He says, the ordinary person, when that happens, they get out the quiver of arrows, and then they shoot a second arrow. They start reacting to it. Why did this happen? This always happens to me. This is, you know, like, I've never, give me a break. Come on. What's the, you know, why? It shouldn't be this way. And so in addition to the physical unpleasant feeling, they add a mental unpleasant feeling through the reactivity of the mind. Whereas somebody who's practiced well, they only get hit with that first arrow. They don't shoot the second arrow of reacting to it. So one of the kind of pith shorthand uh, things that's uh, said sometimes, you know, uh, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Right, the f pain is this part of life, but how we relate to it, how we respond to it, that's up to us if we're paying attention. So, are we letting other people, are we letting life and circumstances dictate how we respond, or do, we, or are we able to remember that capacity to stay balanced, to keep coming back to that? to grow and to develop that. So in relationship and in communication, it's our reactivity to the unpleasantness of things that often impels us to say things, to do things that we later regret. Our, our reactivity to an unpleasant meaning an unpleasant volume, an unpleasant word, an unpleasant tone. And it's often the meanings that are the, that are the, that are the, the hardest, because that goes right into the heart perception. The heart is the domain of feeling and perception. So it's those meanings, those perceptions of abandoned, unloved, you know, not cared for. Those are the, those are the ones that really get us. But that's just a perception, and it's just, it's unpleasant, but it's that, re it's that picking up the perception, and, and, and this, this is me, and I don't like it, that boom, then there's this rush, this flood of reactivity, no, and then either we lash out at someone else, or we lash out at ourselves in, in guilt, or blame, or shame, or we shut down, or we, or we pull away in fear, all from the, the feeling tone, that unpleasantness. 
and then there's and so there's the second arrow and then often there's a third arrow and a fourth arrow and so we just just keep going so at some point we recognize like oh wow there's a reactivity here and then we can stop we can start to start to dial it back So we want to be very careful of the stories we tell ourselves about things, the meanings that we make, as we were looking at earlier today, and the difference between just an observation of what's happened and all of the conclusions and interpretations that we make. Those are, sec those are often second and third and fourth arrows, the stories we're telling ourselves. Those are reactions. So to notice those and to try to dial those back. Equanimity doesn't mean we don't feel things. It doesn't mean that we're this neutral, washed out, non-responsive kind of blah. It just means we don't get caught up. We're not defined by the changing circumstances of our life internally or externally. It means we're not getting dragged around by things. So it gives us perspective, but it's not, it's not cold or unfeeling. It's not distant. It's not disengaged. It's just having perspective. So the metaphor is one of space, like a sense of being wide rather than being far away or distant. It's like having a really wide space to live in. So if, if um, let's say some uh, somebody with very very strong unpleasant body odor is in an elevator with you, that sensation, that's, that unpleasant sensation, is going to be very strong. You might have a reaction to that. But if that same person with that same strong unpleasant body odor were with you in a cathedral or an auditorium with a big, big space around you. Not such a big deal. Same experience, same person, same smell. Lots of space. That's equanimity. The experience doesn't change. The thing doesn't change. The contact doesn't change. Or that the heart's protected because it's wide. It's a lot of space. And so then even if there is a tremble, even if there is a reaction, it's just like ripples in a pond. It can just spread out and smooth out. So how do we develop equanimity? How do we grow in this, in this way? The Buddha gives some instructions, which some of which we'll look at tomorrow. Um, some very uh, interesting, potent uh, contemplations and visualizations we can do to access this sense of uh, stability and spaciousness in the mind. One of the first ways we develop equanimity, though, is um, by feeling our reactivity. We recognize that we learn to be balanced by being out of balance. Right? How do you learn to walk on a balance beam? Well, you fall down a lot. So how do we learn the balance of heart 
it's through our reactivity that balance actually develops. We have to allow ourselves to feel the reactivity. And then the heart learns. So we, we learn equanimity by allowing ourselves to observe and know that, that shaking, that wobbling in the heart. And to breathe with it, to be patient with it, to allow it, to feel it. And then instead of adding the third arrow and the fourth arrow, to just allow the wave of it to pass through us, to allow a wave of anger to arise, to be felt and known and to pass, to allow a wave of impatience to arise, to be felt, to be known and to pass. Fear, anxiety, all of these, these uh, tremblings and shakings, reverberations in the heart, to see them and know them come up, they swell, they persist, and then they subside. The more we allow that process without taking the bait, without picking it up and getting involved and reacting and acting and feeding and fearing and fighting, then equanimity develops. The heart strengthens. It gets wider. It gets bigger. It gets stronger. It gets deeper. And this takes patience. It takes a lot of patience. Patience helps us grow equanimity. The Buddha said, Kanti paramang tapo titika. Patience is the supreme practice, the supreme uh, austerity. Practices of, of austerity were really big in India at the, at, his, at the time that he taught. You know, all kinds of um, hair shirts and beds of nails and things like this. Not literally hair shirts, but definitely beds of nails and standing on one foot for 10 years and all kinds of austerities. And, you know, and so he played on it and he said, patience is the most extreme, is the, is the highest. Patience is the highest virtue or austerity. There's kind of a double meaning there. It, patience burns up all of the reactivity, a sense of just abiding, uh, persevering, steady patience in the heart. Our ability to tolerate discomfort is key in practice and in the cultivation of equanimity. Our ability to tolerate discomfort leads to more choice. If we can't tolerate discomfort, what's going to happen? We're just, you know, that, that, that flood, that wall, that force of reactivity is going to push us into action, reaction, lashing out, saying something, shutting down. So why do we sit with knee pain? Why do we tolerate, you know, why do we practice with that? It strengthens the heart, that ability to tolerate discomfort, to bear with it. So, okay, and just bear with it a little bit longer, just be patient, you know? Feel the mind tremble, feel it react, and then let it subside. Strengthening patience, expanding the spaciousness of the heart and the mind. We also need to let ourselves uh, make mistakes, really allow ourselves to mess up. And we learn by making mistakes. Uh, Dogen is famous for this, um, this one phrase that means uh, something like, 
one continuous mistake or one mistake after another as a characterization of spiritual practice. It's like one continuous mistake. So uh, Suzuki Roshi uh, took that and said, you know, like a Zen master's life could be understood, could be said to be so many years of one making one mistake after another. And the question isn't if we make mistakes or not. It's just that sense of, you know, how do we hold it and how quickly do we recover? Balance is a process of being continually out of balance. And then correcting, correcting, correcting. So one mistake after another, losing balance again and again and again and again, but coming back to the middle, coming back to the middle. So we learn how to keep an even keel in life by, by, by studying what throws us off base, starting to learn what those conditions are, where we actually fall down and lose it. Then we start to learn, oh, okay, how did that happen? What were the, what were the various conditions? I, I used to do a lot of canoeing when I was younger. And you spend enough time on a river, you start to learn what the conditions are that will swamp the boat. You start to learn you know, what the maximum angle is that you can enter uh, a river with the bow of the boat and not get spun around. You, know? you start to learn that if, you're, if your boat is, is broadside in the river, that's the most dangerous. And that if that happens, you've got to, you have to lean downstream. If there's any weight into the current, boom, that current is going to take the gunwale of the, of the canoe and, and tip you over. You start to learn what the conditions are to stay balanced and where the dangers, where the dangerous points are for us through our mistakes by, by flipping the boat, you know? That's how you got to learn it. <laughs> you got to get swamped sometimes. You get wet, and then you realize, oh, next time I can be a little bit more careful there, you know. And next time is a slightly different situation. Then you learn something else. And we also learn from other people. We grow in equanimity through other people. So wise friendship, being around people who are on the path, is a, is an essential part of developing wholesome qualities. The Buddha said, you know, I don't know of any other single thing, uh, any other single external thing for somebody uh, on the path for, for developing wholesome qualities and spending time with wise spiritual companions. So we can learn equanimity from being around people who are more equanimous than us. You ever have that experience? You're freaking out about something and someone else is just chill. And you're like, really? That's an option? I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know I didn't need to freak out right now. <laughs> we, we, we learn from other people. Uh, sometimes we learn equanimity from uh, uh, the people that we want to change in our lives, who we can't change. Deep, deep teacher. I've probably learned the most about equanimity from my family. You know? The people who we love and care about so deeply. We have strong bonds with. 
And then, you know, we have to come to a certain point of acceptance to recognize, you know, like, they have their own path. There's only so much I can do. And it's, it's, through, it's through the suffering of trying again and again and again to control someone else's life that we recognize the futility of it and that we recognize the limits of our control, the limits of the sphere of our influence. That's equanimity. Equanimity comes from wisdom, from seeing clearly the way things are. From seeing clearly everything's following its own course. The, the choices that other people make determine the course of their life, not our wishes for them. When we really see that clearly, really understand that, then we have more balance in, in, uh, in those relationships. Doesn't mean we don't try, doesn't mean we don't stay engaged or connected. It just means we recognize the limits and we let go there. So there's a profound kind of a balance and an acceptance that can come. And then when we do act, we act from a different place. When we do speak, we speak from a different place. So ultimately, equanimity comes from wisdom. It comes from this seeing clearly, seeing clearly into the nature of things, that everything's changing, that, that doesn't belong to us. The Buddha said that there are these, um, these eight conditions that come and go and change in life all the time, that the whole world is continually revolving around and turning around these eight conditions, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and shame, success and failure, or pleasure and pain. And that they just change up and down, up and down, up and down. So what happens, you know, when, when we meet with these changing conditions, do we get obsessed by them? The Buddha says, when an ordinary person who hasn't practiced meets with gain, they don't remember, they don't reflect, ah, this gain is impermanent, it's fragile, it's subject to change. He, you know, she or he doesn't really understand it as it is, as a temporary condition. And so what happens? Gain obsesses their mind. Loss obsesses their mind. They become attracted by gain and repelled by loss. There's that push and that pull, getting yanked around. But when somebody who's practiced and understood and seen clearly the teachings meets with gain, they reflect, ah, this gain is impermanent, it's temporary, it's fragile, it's subject to change. They understand and see it as it really is. This is a temporary condition. And so, gain does not obsess their mind. They're not attracted by gain. They're not repelled by loss. The heart stays even.
So in our relationships, in our conversations, when we meet with blame or praise, are we attracted and repelled? Or do we understand, ah, this is temporary, fragile, subject to change, this is just a condition. Everyone is blamed. Everyone, no one is free from blame. Right? Bob Dylan said, you can please some of the people all the time. I'm not going to get it right. <laughs> you can please all the people some of the time. You can please uh, some of the people all the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. Thank you. I'll let you be in my dream if I can be in yours. <laughs> I said that. Beautiful song. So um, I don't think Abraham Lincoln actually said that. I think it's a misquote. It's often attributed to him. So do we get repelled and attracted by those conditions, or can, or do we stay steady, like that, like that, like that stable rock with the wind rushing over it, unmoved, unshaken? This is where right view comes in, also seeing clearly, seeing that, you know, we blame the other person. Someone says something or does something that we don't like. And we forget, we forget that there's so many conditions leading to that. We think there's really someone there doing that to us. It's like the story of uh, carrying your groceries arms full of groceries and someone knocks into you and you drop your groceries and your eggs break all over the sidewalk and you get very angry and then you look up and you see the person has a, a, a seeing eye stick that they're blind and in that moment of seeing clearly all of the anger vanishes right it's the right view the wrong view that idiot why did they bump into me? Can't they, you know, weren't they looking where they were going? And the right view, oh, they're blind. You see clearly the reactivity vanishes. And the other story that's told is like being in a, a, a boat on a stream, on a river, and there's another boat coming towards you and it's foggy. And you see the other boat and you start shouting, hey, watch out. And the other boat's getting closer and closer. Hey, watch out. Don't you see my boat? The other boat's getting really, really close, and now you're really, really angry, screaming and yelling, get out of the way, can't you see? And then finally the boat gets close enough and the fog clears and you see it's empty. There's no one in the boat. We're, we're walking around the world, reacting to things, assuming that there's some, someone who sees behind what they're doing, assuming that there's even someone there doing things to us. We have wrong view, we're not seeing clearly. So the mind starts reacting, getting pulled around. And we see clearly the conditions, things are changing, and the mind stays stable. And this is one of the highest fruits of practice. And it says in the Mangala Sutta, when touched by these worldly winds, these winds of pleasure and pain, praise and blame, loss and gain, fame and shame, when touched by the worldly winds, 
the heart remains sorrowless, stainless, secure, unshaken. This is the highest blessing. So let's sit together for a couple moments. Do we let other people, do we let life determine how we respond? So thank you again for your kind, kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.